The following message is by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and Content Developer and Global Trainer with Hands to the Plow Ministries. You can find more from Dr. DeRoshi at www.jasonderoshi.com. Grace to you, brothers and sisters. It is a joy to be back with you here in Shashamane. Rift Valley Theological College has a partnership with my school, and it is a, just a delight to be able to serve you as faculty and administrators and some students, local pastors, with a message from God's Word today. The modern history of evangelicalism in Ethiopia began in this region in the 1930s when then the Sudan Inland Mission, SIM, came into this country and was directed by the Orthodox down to the south. And God began to break out among the peoples, your ancestors. And then it was in the late 1960s, not far from this place in the region of Wandoganet, where the Spirit of God poured out upon a local body of gathered believers. And from that work, as I understand it, the Muluwangel denomination was birthed. And here we stand today, now at a Muluwangel Bible college, hungry for the Word of God. Even recently, I heard from a young evangelical Ethiopian, how there is a general sense across this country that Africa is a cursed place. This reminded me of an episode of the podcast, Ask Pastor John, that came live last year, and it recorded a certain person named Jason from Kampala, the capital of Uganda, who asked Pastor John Piper a pointed question regarding why Africans have suffered so much. These were Jason's words. Does God care for Africans? Providence has a long track record here. Throughout history, we have been a beastly, deplorable, enslavable race, constantly riddled with disease, famine, and suffering. How are we not to conclude that we are God's least favorite race? Every day is pure struggle for most Ugandans. I know God promises to look after all people, but it still makes me wonder why does he especially seem to hate Africa so much? Now, when I read those words, my heart grieved. It still grieves today. And I have longed for the opportunity to give voice more directly and explicitly to Scripture's truths regarding God's heart for all nations, including those from Africa, whether from Uganda or Ethiopia or beyond. I am a father of three adopted African children. Indeed, all three of these younger children grew up in this very region. One of my sons is Sadama, 
And then one of my son, my, my son and daughter, twins, have a father who was Wailaita and a mother who was Hydea. I love Africa. I regularly come here. This is my 11th trip to this beautiful country to help train church leaders and to care for orphans and widows. Again, I love Africa. And in recent years, I've been discovering the key role that Africa in general, and indeed black Africa in particular, has played in God's redemptive plan. Because Uganda and Ethiopia are related to the Bible's portrait of black Africa, I've narrowed most of my scriptural overview in today's message to this sphere. But the whole still bears broader significance to Africa at large. Now, my own journey of discovery began when I, as an Old Testament professor, started studying the book of Zephaniah who was likely a black Judean prophet, biracial. My journey has taken me from Genesis to Revelation, and I hope that this brief survey will help Jason and Kampala and those of you here and beyond who may listen to this message to recognize God's love for Africa and to hope in God's steadfast love toward all who are in Christ, whether from Africa or beyond. So I begin. In this message that I have titled, God's, sorry, The Long History of God's Love for Africa. We begin here with the first heading, God's Chosen Prophet. The book of Zephaniah opens this way. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Zephaniah 1.1. Zephaniah means Yahweh has hidden, and his name testifies to his parents' living faith in God and their hope in his protective care during the dark days of King Manasseh. 2 Kings 21. Not only this, Zephaniah was a Judean in the Davidic royal line. This prophet's great-great-grandfather was King Hezekiah, who led a massive spiritual awakening that was paralleled in Judah's history only by the work of King Josiah, whose own spiritual reforms Zephaniah's own preaching helped to serve. I date this book in 622 directly after the book of the law was found in Jerusalem by one of the priests in Josiah's day, and directly after King Josiah had initiated this reform across the country. Now, we also learn that Zephaniah's father was a certain Cushy, and this fact suggests that this prophet was biracial. Cush, as many of you know, was ancient black Africa. And Zephaniah's grandmother, Gedaliah's wife, was probably an African who married into the Jewish royal line. She then named her son Cushite, or My Blackie, celebrating his ethnic heritage. 
As a biracial prophet, Zephaniah displayed the hope of a diversified people of God in fulfillment of Yahweh's promises to Abraham regarding his saving blessing reaching all the nations of the earth. Think Genesis 12, 3, Genesis 22, 18. Now, support for Zephaniah's biracial background comes in how he highlights Cush with respect to both punishment and restoration. First, in Zephaniah 2.12, Cush is the only neighbor that Zephaniah mentions that has already experienced God's judgment. While the English translations treat the verse as future, the historical context and the Hebrew suggest that Cush's demise was already past. Specifically, when Yahweh declares, You also, O Cushites, have been slain by my sword, he's likely, likely referring to the fall of the 25th Egyptian dynasty in 663 BC that the Cushites controlled and to which Nahum the prophet earlier referred to when he wrote against Nineveh, declaring, Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile? Nahum 3.8 in Zephaniah, as in Nahum, the Lord's punishment had started with Cush, and their fall gave proof that Nineveh's fall would soon come. Zephaniah 2, 13-15. But there's more. For Zephaniah elevates Cush as his sole example of end times hope for the world. Speaking about the future day of the Lord, when God would right all wrongs and reestablish right order and peace throughout the entire world, the prophet writes this in Zephaniah 3, 9 and 10. At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him from, with one accord. From the region of the rivers of Cush... My worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. What the prophet envisioned here is just astounding. And how the New Testament sees it fulfilled is absolutely breathtaking. But before unpacking it, I want to recall the Old Testament's portrait of Cush, which reaches back to the earliest chapters of Genesis. Africa in Old Testament history. Now, Africa's Kushite empire was centered in modern Sudan. It stretched south and eastward into the regions of present-day South Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Djibouti, and Somalia, and even across the Red Sea into what was ancient Sheba in the southern part of Saudi Arabia. The prophet Moses married a woman from this area, Numbers 12.1, and later a queen from the very region heard of King Solomon's fame concerning Yahweh's name and came to Jerusalem to encounter firsthand the king's wisdom and prosperity, 1 Kings 10.1-10. Now, shoot ahead one millennium, a thousand years later, when faced with the hard-heartedness of the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus declared, The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Matthew twelve forty-two. We first learn of the region of Cush 
as a terminus location of one of the four rivers flowing from Eden, Genesis 2.13. Now, this link highlights God's intent to bring life to Africa. The area of Cush and the people associated with it were named after Noah's grandson through Ham. Now, important for our understanding, Zephaniah's prophecy is the fact that Cush's son Nimrod is the one who built ancient Babel, or ancient Babylon, Genesis 10, 6-10, where God would ultimately confront those seeking to exalt their own name, God would confuse the world's languages, and then he would scatter peoples across the planet, Genesis 11, 1-9. Those descending from Cush dispersed to Africa's horn in the northeast part of the continent. They are among the families and the nations that Yahweh then promised to bless, ultimately through Abraham's messianic offspring, who would overcome curse and the enemy and bring blessing into the world. So it is that we read to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Or later, to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will regard themselves blessed. Sorry, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. And then to Abraham again, in Genesis 22, 17 and 18. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth regard themselves blessed. So it is that Paul, in Galatians 3, 8, later declared, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. After Israel settled into the promised land, and after the kingdom divided into north and south, Judah made many political alliances with the nation of Cush prior to Zephaniah's ministry. We read about these types of relationships, partnerships, in texts like Isaiah 18, 1 and 2, and 20, 5 and 6. Jerusalem's leadership also had many strong ties with Africans, as we see in 2 Samuel 18, 21, Jeremiah 38, 7, and 39, 16. And all of these facts identify how Zephaniah's grandmother could have indeed been a Cushite. Africa in other prophecies. The prophet Jeremiah queried, can an Ethiopian or more literally, can a Cushite change his skin or a leopard his spots? Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. The Cushites are frequently a part of prophetic oracles of both punishment and restoration. As for punishment, Yahweh identified how he would lead Assyria to overcome Egypt and Cush, resulting in those in Judah being dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and Egypt their boast. Isaiah 20, verse 5. Similarly, with words akin to Zephaniah's, Ezekiel declared, The day of the Lord is near, and then he noted, A sword shall come upon Egypt, and anguish shall be upon Cush. Ezekiel 30, 3 and 4. But a remnant from Cush would also be part of the great new exodus that God would work in the days of the Messiah. 
As Isaiah testified just after foretelling the rise of the Messiah's kingdom that would extend to all nations, in that day, Isaiah says, in that day, the Lord will extend extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamat, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. There will be some from the nations and some from ethnic Israelites gathered together in this great second exodus, Isaiah 11, 11 and 12. With a similar anticipation, the psalmist spoke of a remnant of Africans being among those to whom Yahweh would grant new birth certificates. Thus, he would regard them as full-fledged children in his family, and their new home would be the transformed Jerusalem. In Psalm 87 that opens, O great things are spoken of you, O Jerusalem, we read these words. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Psalm 87, 4 through 6. From beyond the rivers of Cush. Now we can return to Zephaniah 3. Here, Yahweh urges the faithful remnant from Judah and beyond to wait for me for the day when he would rise as judge. Zephaniah 3 8a. God gives two reasons to compel such patient trust, each beginning with the Conjunction four. In Hebrew, it's key. First reason why the remnant should wait. One, because God still intends to gather and punish all the earth's people, people groups, that is their nations, and all the earth's powers or kingdoms. Zephaniah 3 8b. But the second reason is this. God has purposed to preserve and transform a multi-ethnic remnant from these peoples into his eternal worshipers. Zephaniah 3, 9 and 10. We thus read these words. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From the very region of the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Zephaniah 3, 9 and 10. The rivers of Cush were likely the blue and the white Nile, as we see in Isaiah 18, 1 and 2. In seeing supplicants journey with offerings to Yahweh at his sanctuary, it's as if the descendants of those once exiled from Eden are now following the rivers of life back to their source in order to enjoy fellowship with the great king. Genesis 2, 10 through 14, Revelation 22, 1 and 2. And these worshipers consist of a multi-ethnic group from the peoples of the world all of whom have transformed speech patterns that call on Yahweh's name. What Zephaniah envisions here is nothing less than the reversal of the Tower of Babel judgment. 
You'll recall that it was a Cushite who built Babylon or Babel, Genesis 10, 8 through 10. And you'll recall that those shaping the Tower of Babel were themselves seeking to make a name for themselves, Genesis 11, 4. We then read that the place was called Babel or Babylon because there the Lord confused the language of the earth, of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed or scattered them over the face of the earth, Genesis eleven nine. When it says God confused the language, the Hebrew word is the same as that translated speech in the English text of Zephaniah 3, 9. And when it says that God dispersed the peoples in Genesis 11, it uses the same word for my dispersed ones in Zephaniah 3.10. Indeed, (coughs) the only places in all the Bible that include the nouns name and language and the verb dispersed are Genesis 11 and Zephaniah 3. Back in Zephaniah 2.12, Yahweh declared punishment on Cush. But now in Zephaniah 3.9 and 10, he predicts that even the most distant lands upon which God has poured his wrath will have a worshiping remnant whom his presence will compel to the transformed Jerusalem, thus reversing the curse of Babel. The prophet elevates the region of Cush as his sole example of God's end times new creational transformation. So how does the New Testament reflect on this prophecy? Salvation of an African. When Luke crafted the book of Acts, I believe that he had Zephaniah 3, 9 and 10 in mind. In the context of explaining a mission of making worshipers to the end of the earth, Acts 1.8, Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, 17 through 21, cites Joel 2, 28 through 32, which depicts the day of the Lord and mentions calling on God's name in ways that are very similar to how Zephaniah does this in Zephaniah 3, 8 and 9. Now, what is not found in Joel But what is present in Zephaniah 3, 9, and 10 is the vision of transformed speech, which the Greek Septuagint renders tongue. And what is also not present in Joel, but present in Zephaniah and in Acts 2, is united devotion. Luke highlights both the transformation of tongue and the the united devotion when he details the outpouring of tongues, Acts 2, 4, and 11, and the amazing kinship that was enjoyed by the early church, Acts 2, 42 through 47. With this, it's important to note that the Greeks called ancient Cush Ethiopia, a name that is strikingly absent from the list of nations in Acts 2 that Luke tells us were gathered from every nation under heaven, Acts 2, 5. Now, the reason Luke never mentions Ethiopia in Acts 2 is is likely because he sought to highlight the fulfillment of Zephaniah's vision by noting the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, 26 through 40. The first known Gentile convert to Christianity was a black African, a Cushite, 
And this highlights that God was beginning to fulfill the shaping of a multi-ethnic community of worshipers, just as Zephaniah proclaimed. Hope for every people and nation. Now, a second way the New Testament reflects on what Zephaniah envisioned is that Jesus' resurrection ignited a global movement of making disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 19. Thus, Jesus' followers bore witness to his greatness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, Acts 1, 8. In broader fulfillment of Zephaniah's restoration hope in 3, 9, and 10, Jesus' first coming marks the beginning of the end of the first creation and initiates the new creation, which corresponds to the new covenant, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Galatians 6.15, Hebrews 8.13. In this age, God counts all those in Christ as offspring of Abraham, adopted sons and full heirs of all the promises, Galatians 3.8 and 16 and 29 and 4, 4 through 6. There is one people of God, the church, Ephesians 2, 14 and 16. This means that Cushites, like Simeon, or he also goes by Niger, and Jews like Saul, or his later name, Paul, could be part of the exact same Christian congregation in Antioch, Acts 13, 1. It also means that Christian Greeks like Titus didn't need to be circumcised, Galatians 2, 3. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 declares that Jesus is shaping a kingdom of priests, a kingdom and priests from every tribe and language and people and nation. With the salvation of the African politician in Acts 8, 26-40, the Lord Jesus sparked the beginning of the end that will culminate in global praise to God who is working all of his purposes well, from Genesis through Zephaniah all the way to Revelation. As Zephaniah envisioned in Zephaniah 3, 9, and 10, already we, all of us gathered in this room, some from America, some from Ethiopia, and it would relate to all Christians throughout the planet, already we, as a multi-ethnic group of Christian priests are offering sacrifices of praise. Romans 12.1, Hebrews 13.15 and 16, 1 Peter 2.5, and we were offering these sacrifices at Mount Zion in the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 12.22. Nevertheless, We are still awaiting the day when the new Jerusalem will descend from heaven as the new earth, Revelation 21, 2, and 10. Then, our daily journey to find rest in Christ's supremacy and sufficiency, think Matthew 11, 28-29, John 6, 35, in that day, our daily journey to find rest in Christ will come to completion in a place where the curse is no more. Revelation 21, 22 through 22, 5. On that day, all God's children in Jesus, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, will indeed call on Yahweh's name together and celebrate that they are free at last. So I ask, does God love Africa? Does God 
care for Africans. Both scripture and history declare it so. In the beginning, God intentionally directed the waters of life to Africa, thus identifying his intent to satisfy the thirsty and to make desolate places fertile. Genesis 2.13 While the world's story has proven that the Lord takes African sin, sins as seriously as those of other nations, it also testifies to God's pleasure in saving Africans and in using their transformation as a marker of hope for what he intends to do in the rest of the world. In saving the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, the Lord began reversing the destructive effects of the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11, and he inaugurated a global ingathering that will culminate in omni-ethnic praise to Jesus at the end of the age, Revelation 5, 9 and 10, 7, 9 and 10. The living waters are still flowing to Africa. And Jesus' invitations are still ringing today. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. John seven thirty seven. All who answer the call shall not thirst anymore, for he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation seven sixteen and 17. Such hope is available for all in Africa and beyond. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. For more writings, sermons, and lectures from Dr. DeRoshi, please visit www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring the God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.